0: If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, to catch you up, uh, we've been in this series where we're learning about what it looks like to live by faith. This, this thing that Corey ten Boone defines as a fantastic adventure in trusting him. And uh, today we're going to be answering the question, what does it look like to live by faith when somebody you love dies? Um, this is a message that I know is going to hit close to home for some of us. And, and maybe this is a message that you don't want to enter into. It. And, and I totally get that. But here's what I would say to you as we get in. Um, this is a day that one day, one way or another, we're going to have to deal with. And what we have in our text this morning is a picture of the difference that faith can make on this day. Um, Let's take a look at it. Genesis chapter 22. We'll pick up at the end of the chapter where we left off last week. We read this starting in verse 20. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his infinity and beyond loving brother, Kemuel, uh, the father of Aram, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Diflad, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milka bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Remua, bore Tabah, Gaham, Tehash, and Makah. Okay, here's what's going on with the Hebrew phone book at this point. Some of you are like, why are we reading all of these names? Um, here's what's going on with the Hebrew phone book. What we're starting to see is that the story in Genesis is beginning to shift um, away from Abraham and Sarah and their adventure of faith. Uh, to Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, whose genealogy we just read about there. Um, we're gonna learn um, much more about Rebecca uh, in the chapters to come and, and come back next week. You're gonna meet Rebecca next week. But the point is, the story's beginning to shift from Abraham and Sarah to their son Isaac and his wife to be Rebecca. The scene is beginning to shift. And this brings us to the end of one of the great lives recorded in the pages of Scripture. Chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. This, by the way, is the only time a woman's age is ever given in the Bible. It's like the ladies got together and said, Lord, we love you. We love that you know this about us. We love, we love that you know everything about us, but we don't want them to know. So can you just leave that part out? And and, and that's the end of that. But here we get it. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of Sarah's life. And Sarah died at Kirith Abba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So as the story begins to transition, what we see is between the two of them, one of them was going to go first, it's Sarah. Sarah dies, and, and Abraham, he is, um, he's absolutely wrecked, because his girl is gone. And, and, and I know, if you've been here through this series, you might be like, like they didn't have a perfect marriage, but they built a life together. Um, we don't know a lot about their early years, but we know is they met as unbelievers. They got married. They tried to have kids. They couldn't have children. And some time passed. And then God appeared to them. And he said, leave behind everything you know. Come and follow me. And I will give you a son. And through your son, you're going to have lots more sons and daughters. And through your family, I'm going to fix everything that's broken in the world. And so... They left their home together. They took this incredible risk together. They followed God together. They walked with God. And, and it wasn't all smooth sailing. If you've been here in this series, you know they had some bad days where they got tired of waiting on God and took things into their own hands. and brought great pain into the lives of one another, into the lives of those around them. But they also had great days where they trusted in God's promise, where they saw miracles happen and they laughed with tears of joy at the goodness of God. Um, how many of you, if you're married, this sounds about accurate? They have highlights and lowlights. Anybody else? Any one oh, honest in the room here to say this is a pretty normal marriage where you have some good days that you want to tell the kids about and then you have some days you're like, I hope God doesn't write Bible about that story. This is Abraham and Sarah. And and if you are fortunate enough to make it through all the ups and downs, if you're fortunate enough to make it through the long run and come to a place where you've been married far longer and spent more time together than you spent apart, then you know that you begin to develop a bond with someone so deep that when they're gone, it feels like a part of yourself is gone. And this is why this mighty warrior falls to the ground crying. I mean, think about it. We saw just a couple of chapters ago, Abraham is a mighty warrior. He was leading an army of 318 ninja warriors to go defeat the powers in the region. But here on the day his wife dies, this mighty warrior falls to the ground and grieves and cries. And here's the point. I think a lot of us can learn from Father Abraham. Um, because we live in a culture that is, that is so afraid of death that we've tried to convince ourselves it's natural. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, have you heard of a, a, an indie film called Star Wars? Anybody? Um, there's a, a quote in Star Wars that really captures, I think, the spirit of our age. Yoda, uh, who's the little green guy, um, he's meant, if, if, you're not, if you don't know Star Wars, which by the way, if you don't know Star Wars, um, but if you don't know Star Wars, Yoda is meant to be the wise one. He's the smartest one. He's the one that has wisdom. Here's what Yoda says about death. This is what passes for wisdom in one of the most uh, famous cinematic movies in history. He says this, death is a natural part of life. Rejoice for those around you who transform into the Force. Mourn them, do not. Miss them, do not. Attachment leads to jealousy, the shadow of greed, that is. Um, If you've ever wondered what could turn a young Jedi knight uh, into a twisted and evil, like one of the most twisted and evil villains in cinematic history, it's terrible advice like that love no one, mourn no one, and if you're sad, don't be sad. Death is natural. Like, no freaking wonder this guy went around and killed everybody. Yoda told him. That's just cool. And, and, and look, um, I don't think any of us say it as blunt as Yoda, but I think we have the same instinct when we encounter death in our culture. Where, where we say things, we, we, it just instinctively comes out of us, where if we were there with Abraham, we might say like, well, hey, at least you had so many years together. Oh, oh, don't be sad, be glad for what you had. Or my favorite is when we sprinkle Bible verses on and say, well, all things work together for the good of those who love and trust him. Don't worry, buddy, get up, stop crying. We say these same things, and I, I believe we're well-intentioned when we say it, but I want the word of God to pull back the veil and see it for what it is this morning that when you live under that kind of cultural pressure to pretend like this is all just fine, you can almost feel bad about being a mess like Abraham. Anyone been there? Where you're grieving and then you feel like, oh, I need to get it together for the people around me. Like, I should be strong in this moment. That's not true. That's the cultural pressure weighing down upon you. Do you know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? Jesus wept, and so did Abraham. Both of those occurrences happen after someone they deeply love dies. Abraham falls to the ground and he weeps because deep down he knew this is not natural. This is not how life is meant to be. And he's right. What we've seen so far in the book of Genesis is that God didn't create death, he created life. And that death, as we've seen it in the pages of Genesis, it is a result of sin, it is an intruder into God's creation, it is an enemy of God's intentions for the world. And when an enemy takes someone you love from you, the most natural thing to do in the world is to cry. And so if you've lost somebody, I want you to look right at me. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to not be okay and not have it all put together and be able to help the people around you. Like, it's okay if this is a hard sermon for you today. It's okay if your grief pops up at unexpected and strange times when you're like, I thought I processed through all of this. It's okay be a mess this isn't a sign that something's wrong with you or that you lack faith if anything what we see in abraham is this is a sign of how much you have lost and how deep your faith is to say in the midst of our nihilistic foolish world that pretends like this is normal this is not normal this is not right Abraham falls to the ground and he grieves. But that's not all he does. Verse three. And Abraham rose up before his dead, and he said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. This is the same thing Abimelech said to him last week. We can see the hand of God on your life. We can see that you're a blessed person. We want to be your friend. We want to be on your side. So they say to him, verse 6, Take any one of our tombs. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. And Abraham rose and he bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, but if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he might give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. Abraham's done some research. He says, for the full price, let him give it to me and your presence is a property for a burying place. Now Ephron, he, he was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite, he answered Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites, of all who were at the gate of his city, know my Lord, hear me, I give you the field, I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and he weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekel shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah. Uh, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout the whole area were made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over by, to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now, some of you are like, the Hebrew phone book made more sense to me than that. Um, this is a very strange story for us as modern people, so let me just give you the, the spark notes on what's going on here. Um, Abraham, he grieves, and then he gets up um, because he wants to honor Sarah. He wants to bury her in a place that he can visit, that the children can visit, that they can remember her, um, that they can celebrate her life. And so he goes to the people of the land and he says, hey, please give me a place to bury my bride. And what they say is, hey, you're a you're prince of God. You, you are blessed. You have any of our tombs you want. They're open to you. We will give them to you. Um, but Abraham's not just looking for a tomb. He's not just looking for a place to bury Sarah. He's looking for a place with some room where uh, he might be buried someday, uh, where his children might be buried someday. Because for as unnatural as death is, death is a reality of life and a fallen world. The way the New Testament says it is death reigns. And so we might have delusions in our modern culture. If I eat the right stuff, work out enough, do the right stuff, my day will never come. Abraham has no such delusions. He knows that his day will come and his children's day will come. And so what he does is he seeks out a place with some room where he can bury um, really the whole family. Now... um, this is a great vision. He, so often we only think about ourselves. We don't think about passing anything on. We don't think about our legacy. We live to have a good time instead of leaving a legacy. Abraham is a man of faith and he's thinking about the next generation and he wants to hand them something. He wants to leave a legacy. But there is a problem. He's a sojourner. He's a foreigner in the land. In this culture, like so many others, um, no foreigner was allowed to own property, no matter how blessed they were. They could recognize, Abraham, you're blessed, but they're like, That doesn't mean we can let you own land here. This is the kind of thing that in this day you would have to marry into that people group uh, to become a citizen of that land and then maybe you could buy land. And the whole idea of marrying with these people, it's um, it's off the table for reasons we'll discuss next week. And so what Abraham does is they offer him a a tomb, one place for Sarah. He wants to buy land for the whole family and so what he says is, would you entreat Ephron Of Zohar for me. Um, It's that word in tree, it's the same word translated um, elsewhere as intercede. What he's saying is, would you come to Ephron and represent me and say, Ephron, please, I, I know it's crazy, but would you sell this foreigner your land? I know we don't do it this way here, but Ephron, would you please do it for this man? And Um, The narrative tells us Ephron hears this and he's like, Abram, Abraham, it's cool. I'll give the land to you. And this complication, this complicated negotiation ensues where he's like, I'll just give it to you, Abraham. You don't have to buy from me. He he affirms you're a prince of God. I see God's blessing on your life. So here, just take the land and the field that's next to it. Um, Which the problem with that is that would not hold up in any legal sense once either of these men are gone. Abraham's thinking legacy. This man is thinking short term, my lifetime. He's not really thinking about what comes next. And so Abraham says, thank you for this kindness. I'm going to ask a greater kindness of you. Would you sell it to me so that I could buy this for full price? So that this thing can be legit, so that I could pass this down, so that this could be a place for my family in your land. And um, this complicated negotiation goes where there's honor, there's honor, but there's also some negotiating going on on Ephron's part where he kind of throws the field in there. And Abram's like, well, I was just looking for the cave. But okay, at the end of all of this, he says, okay, tell me how much it's worth. Get to the bottom line, Ephron. And he tells him 400 shekels of silver. This is the point where you and me, were supposed to go. Now, I I know we don't exactly have Zillow out to know if that was like a good deal or not. So so let me just give you some comparables in the market, okay? Um, Several years later, uh, when one of Abraham's descendants wants to buy the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which is still considered one of the most sacred places on the planet today, he pays 50 shekels for it. Fifty shekels of silver, King David pays, for the entire temple mount. Uh, Jeremiah, one of the prophets of Israel, in the last days of Israel, right before Babylon's going to come in and lay waste to Israel, so you could say this was maybe a downturn in the market, Jeremiah pays 17 shekels of silver for a massive plot of land, And so you could say, okay, that's a downturn in the market, but here's the big idea. 50 shekels for the whole temple mount in the best of days, 17 shekels for this massive land kind of out in the sticks in the worst of days, 400 shekels for a cave with a little field next to it. Does anyone feel like Abraham's going to overpay here? But he's like, no problem. He cuts him the check. He weighs it out. He gives him the silver. Now, some of you are like, this is terrible asset management. Pastor, preach against that. You've got to invest wisely. And Okay, maybe there's another message there. But the point we should be asking is, why does he do this? Abraham's no fool that just blows money for no reason. Why would he agree to pay 400 shekels for this little land? I mean, why not... If it's because he's a sojourner and that's just what it costs to do it as a sojourner, why not just go back to Babylon, where he was a citizen, where he could purchase property at a fair market value that's also still a famous part of the world today? Why not just go home? Why in the world would he pay 400 shekels for this plot of land? Someone said something here. His wife is worth it. Yeah. Okay, that is some good wisdom right there. I'm going to write this down. Men, don't go cheap on your wives. And I'm preaching to myself here. That's right. His wife is worth it. And there's some real wisdom in that. I'm like, ah, I'm going to have to consult the commentaries on that. There's some wisdom in that. I think there's also something more going on here. And the reason I say that is because the New Testament gives us commentary on this moment. And so if you turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we've been visiting this chapter for the past several weeks because it's telling us about the Abraham story and it's giving us God's commentary on it. And, And here's what we read in Hebrews 11 verse 13. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way, make it clear they are seeking a homeland. The question we should ask is, people who speak what way? Well, he just told us. Calling themselves strangers and exiles. The same words present in our Genesis text here. Just like Abraham referred to himself to Ephron of Zohar. And in fact, um, if you look back in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, this chapter has been talking about Abraham and Sarah for the preceding verses, as I mentioned. And so what we have here is the author of Hebrews, he's been talking about Abraham and Sarah's life, and now he points to this moment. And he says, hey, you know that time when Abraham paid out the nose for that land? You know how everyone kind of laughed all the way to the bank? Here's what was going through his mind. Here's what he was thinking. He was thinking, this place is not my home, and neither is Babylon. That might be on my birth certificate, but verse 15 If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, Abraham didn't go back to Babylon because God didn't promise him that land. He promised him this land, the land of Canaan. And, and, and it's not just the land. If you've been here with us in this series, you know that God has consistently promised Abraham three things. He's promised him offspring, that they would have lots of kids. He's promised, uh, he's marked out the borders of this promised land, including this geographical region. And he has consistently said, this region I will give to your offspring. So he's promised lots of babies, land. And then number three, this is the real kicker. He has promised. To through your family, I will fix everything that is broken in the world. And so this promise, it's about so much more than geography. It's about this hope that one day God would put an end to all the tears and all the struggle and all the pain and and yes, even death itself. And here on this terrible day, When the brokenness of this world is overwhelming this man to the point that he can't even stand, he clings to faith in this promise that one day God will overcome this brokenness. And this is why he pays through the nose for Sarah to be buried in the promised land. He is, as the author of Hebrews puts it so well, he is greeting that promise from afar saying, God, I hold next to me the kid you promised. I know you're faithful. And even as I look at my wife, who's no longer here, I believe you will be faithful to fulfill the rest. Sarah might not have lived to see the day. I might not live to see the day. But I believe as sure as the sun will rise in the morning, you will bring that day to pass. And so he paced through the nose to bury her in faith to put her in the place that God promised. He is, as the New Testament will say it elsewhere, grieving with hope. And, And see, this is what it looks like to bury a loved one in faith. You grieve. We talked about that point one. You grieve, but you grieve with gospel hope. Because I was thinking about, there's really, I think, two ways that faith changes how we respond to death, especially the death of someone we love dearly. Number one, it helps us avoid the trap of Yoda. It allows us to enter in and grieve because by faith we know that this is not how God made the world to be. And I will just tell you on that point, if you do not do that, you will end up in counseling years later or you will shut off your heart from all feelings to where a part of you will die long before you actually die. So it's so important that we would enter in and grieve and faith is the thing that enables us to do that and to say, Yoda, you may be very smart elsewhere, but you are very mistaken here. Faith enables us to do that, but that's not the only thing faith enables us to do. Number two, faith enables us to not get lost in our grief. Um, Some of you are probably aware of this, but there is a phenomenon that um, researchers have coined uh, the widowhood effect, uh, where study after study has shown that in the three months following the death of a long-term spouse, the remaining spouse is at a greater likelihood for dying themselves. Uh, The the numbers are uh, 66 to 90 percent, depending on the study you look at, that the remaining spouse will be 66 to 90 percent more likely to themselves die in the three months after their spouse. I'll be really honest with you. When we were um, charting out this series in Genesis, when we were thinking about the life of Abraham, I, I don't know how to describe it other than to say, when it came to this story that seemed kind of random to me, um, I felt just overwhelmed with God's heart for you. Um, Because I know that there are a number of you that have lost a loved one, that have lost a dear spouse even. And I know you know that the grief is real, that if you are brave enough to, by faith, enter in, you know that that grief can be overwhelming. You understand the stats that I just gave. You get that. Uh, Researchers, they're baffled by it. They're like, we can't explain this. We've tested it across age cohorts and ethnicities and stations in life. We can't find an explanation. If you've been there, you know the explanation. The Bible helps us understand why. The death is unnatural. It makes sense that this grief would overwhelm. And so uh, I felt God's heart for you just overwhelming me as I was thinking about this text. And, and others of you, there are others of you that maybe you haven't lost a spouse, but maybe this is a day that you are terrified thinking about. That You, are, you, you know everything I just said about how this grief can overwhelm. And so you are thinking, I don't know how I'm going to make it past that day. I don't know how I will get through. And um. I don't have a lot of notes for this part of the sermon. I just want to speak from my heart. I believe that it is faith that gets Abraham through this day. And it is faith that can get you through that day. What we'll see as the story of Genesis continues is Abraham lives 38 more years after this. Uh, And he has some mighty acts of faithfulness left in him. Come back next week. This guy's not done yet. And here's the thing. Neither are you. If you're not dead yet, you're not done yet. And even after a traumatic loss by faith, God can still take you deeper and work great things through your life. If you are not dead yet, you are not done yet. And this is what we see in Abraham's story. I'm just asking that the Holy Spirit would help us to believe this a little more deeply this morning. Because I think if we believed it, I mean really in our bones, believed what Abraham believed. If we shared the hope and the faith of Abraham it would turn this valley upside down. One life, one interaction at a time. I mean that's certainly what we see in Abraham's life. It's as he grieves with hope and pays through the nose because of his hope in what God is going to do that he continues to be a man that shapes his legacy some of his most important moments will come next week it's a huge part of his legacy he continues doing great things and here's the point i'm trying to make and you can too because we have more than a glimpse don't we I mean, we can more than greet this promise from afar, can't we? We have Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of his promises to Abraham, who on the cross he took on our sins and our sorrow and our shame. He took it upon himself. He even took on the death we deserve so that in the grave, from the heart of darkness, he could grab a hold of death itself and grab it by the throat and overcome it with the power of his life and his love and burst the hole out the other side. This is the good news we celebrate week after week here, that the reign of death is over, that death is defeated, that it is old news, it is on its way out, and that new creation is on the march. And this is not, you gotta hear me, this is not some optimistic thinking that we psych ourselves up to when we are sad. This is real Factual reality. This is a hope that the way that the authors of the New Testament will say it, this hope is living. It is grounded in real, factual things that happen in human history. Um, Listen how Paul, one of the earliest disciples of Jesus, puts it. Writing to a church in Thessalonica, he says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. He's not talking about those that nod off during the sermon. This is people that died. Um, We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He's saying just as the historical reality that Jesus walked out of the grave is true, so we can be assured that the same God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us who trust in him from the dead on the last day. It is as good as done. We've already seen it happen. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpets of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Those are the words that I shared at my grandfather's funeral one year ago. Um not just because the Bible says to encourage one another with these words, though that would be reason enough. Um, Some of you know that my grandparents basically raised me. And and I have so many memories of my grandfather. Um, The one thing I can't remember is him ever crying or really showing any emotion at all. Like we all knew he loved us because he showed up, he was present. There was never any doubt, but those words coming out, that, that was just not his style, Until the day my grandma died. And on that day, I saw this mighty warrior of a man break. I saw him like Abraham on the ground crying, weeping, because her death rocked his world. But by God's grace, he didn't get lost in his grief. By faith, he entered in, and this man that didn't really know how to show emotions entered in to the grief by faith, but he didn't get lost in his grief. By God's grace, these became some of his favorite verses from 1 Thessalonians here. And, And so when I went to seminary, what I would do is I'd want to argue with him about them, because this is what you do when you go to seminary. You argue about the stuff you're learning about, And I'd want to argue, well, here's the timing, and here's the chart, and here's how all this is going to go down. He knows. I always just look at me and go, I don't know. But I do know he's coming back. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I believe this is going to happen. I believe Jesus is coming back, and when he does, I'm going to see her again. And he had just this unshakable hope. To where, even though my grandma was really the spiritual driver in the family, I watched my grandfather grow in the years after his death, her death, to where some of his mightiest acts of faith happened in the last 10 years of his life after that terrible day where he lost his wife. And I think the reason that he finished his life so well was because he grieved with this hope. And that's my hope for you and me. That is what I felt hit me like a ton of bricks when we were charting this series out. Is I, I believe God wants all of us to feel that on that terrible, terrible day, there is hope there. And by faith, we can enter into where that is not the end for us, but that God could continue to grow and lead us from that place. And look, we're not guaranteed anything in this life. I'm not saying that if you would just have faith, you'll get 10 more years on the end of your life. I could get hit by a bus on my way home from preaching this sermon. I could drop dead while preaching right now. We're not guaranteed anything. But what we see in the scriptures is that faith is an invitation to a deeper life for as long as we have breath in our lungs. And so whether it's in good times, whether in bad, the invitation of God is trust me. And when you trust me and follow me, I will lead you into a deeper life, even on the worst days of your life, even on the best days of your life. Trust me until the day that your faith becomes sight and you won't need faith anymore. These things remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love because love goes on forever. But until then, you're really going to need that faith because you will have hard days. And so I just want to end by encouraging you with these words that church, there is a day coming that for all the struggle and all of the drama and all the tears and the loss that we are going through in this world, there is a day coming where we are going to see him face to face. And whether it's because we ourselves breathe our last and he opens our eyes and greets us, or whether we're one of those few that are still alive when he comes back, there is a day coming where we are going to stand before him and we will see the one who conquered death face to face. And on that day, for everyone who's trusted in him, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. He will say, those tears, those are one of the former things. I understand your tears. I grieved. I lost. But I'm going to wipe those away because the former things are gone. And behold, I am making all things new. And on that day, we will be reunited with all who share this hope and we will sing together the praises of the one who conquered death. We will uh, run and play and enjoy a world free of the effects of the fall because not because of our strength, but because of his strength and the gift that he has given us in his great love. And we will do it together forever. I don't want you to miss the we language in 1 Thessalonians. The prize is we get Jesus. But the Bible always wants us to realize we get Jesus, not you get Jesus. We, together, will sing his praises and go, are you kidding me? Can you believe what he has done? Look at what he has done. This is the future that we have to look forward to. And I'm telling you, this is why Abraham paid through the nose for that land. Because he greeted that day from afar through the glimpses he had, may we also greet it through the cross and empty tomb of our Savior who's loved us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for your great love for us. I thank you that you don't just leave us to struggle with the brokenness of this world, but that you loved us so much that you entered into our broken world, that you took the worst of our darkness onto yourself so that you could give us a life we could never earn. Thank you for how much that you love us. Jesus, I ask that you would... I feel right now that my words are so weak. I am a dying man speaking to dying men and women. My words hold no power. And so I ask that you would, by the power of your spirit, speak to us right now and open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the hope that Abraham greeted from afar. Would you give us a bigger vision of the future? Would you help us to get our eyes up to see the reality of you and all that you have coming for us? that we might respond in faith whatever the day has for us. Help us. I can't do this, but I believe you can do this in, the ti- in this time by the power of your spirit. And so it's in your beautiful name I ask. Amen.